We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey everyone, it's Dan Favalli. Remember to search Blue Wire Buckets in iTunes or Spotify for more NBA content. Hello everybody, welcome back to the Hardwood Knox Podcast. I'm Dan Favalli, your second favorite co-host around these parts. Fear not, though, because Andy Bailey is with me today as we keep our season preview train a-rolling. We are super excited to be joined by Sam Cooper from the Timeline Podcast, which is also a Blue Wire Network podcast. It is also a Phoenix Suns podcast, so we are going to get into a deep dive onto Phoenix and its long-term outlook today. Before we do get started, though, our usual housekeeping notes... First and foremost, you need to be following Sam on Twitter, one of the most underrated Twitter follows out there. He is at S. Cooper Hoops, spelled exactly like it sounds. If you want to follow me, I'm at Dan Favalli. Andy is at Andrew D. Bailey. The show is at Hardwood Knox. We would still and will always appreciate it if you can continue rating, reviewing, and subscribing to us on iTunes. You also need to be subscribing to us wherever else you consume your podcast, if it's not iTunes. Going over to iTunes, though, and throwing us a rating and writing a review is still one of the best ways to let us know that you are out there. You guys have done a fantastic job since the start of the NBA Finals, really helping us drum those numbers up, giving us some reviews to work off of. We just ask and beg that you keep them coming. If you're new around these parts, just know that we love you, and we would appreciate you do all of those things. Rate, review, subscribe to us on iTunes. Please do not forget. Hearts for me and Andy both. And finally, if you have not checked out the Blue Wire podcast yet, aside from us, what are you doing? Aside from the Timeline pod with, with Sam Cooper, uh, there's the Chase Down podcast, uh, the Cap- which looks at the Cavaliers, with the Light Years podcast, which looks at the Warriors. Blue Wires also has a very deep stable of NFL podcasts, and we'll be expanding to include a bunch of other sports momentarily. 
so be sure to check us out and all the content we are pumping out over there. You can follow Blue Wire at Blue Wire Pods. And now, with all that out of the way, we get to Sam Cooper for some deep, deep, deep Phoenix Suns discussion. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Hardwood Knox podcast. I am Dan Favalli, coming at you with my super-duper co-host, Andrew D. Bailey. This is a, a triple threat pod, though, because we are also joined by uh, the Timeline Pod's Sam Cooper. If you do not follow him on Twitter, you absolutely need to. He is at S. Cooper Hoops, spelled exactly like it sounds. And as I said before, he's a co-host of the Timeline Podcast, a podcast about the Phoenix Suns, who are we going to who are we going to get in depth with today? You can follow them over at the Timeline Pod, also spelled exactly as it sounds. How are you doing today, Sam? You get priority over me asking how Andy's doing. <laughs> uh, thank you for the introduction, Dan. I'm just glad we could get Andy on today. Uh, it should be fun with the three of us. He, we need to disclose this. He was a little bit nervous when I said that you wanted to record with him. <laughs> Why is that? Who, who wants to record with me? That's the question. I actively just avoid Andy and he's my <laughs> co-host. So this was new for him. <laughs> um. So anyway, a lot of stuff going on. How are you Pause. doing, Andy? <laughs> uh, you don't I'm want to answer that, Andy? Another, no, another strange pause as I take a drink. I'm doing great. I'm I'm ready to dive into the Phoenix Suns. Yeah, so am I. They've had an interesting offseason. Uh, Sam, I think I want to start with, now that it's all kind of settled, what do you think of the dismissal of Igor Kokoshkov and the Monty Williams hiring? Obviously, Monty Williams, he's, he's a fine choice. Um, I'm just wondering if the notion of a coaching swap infers a continued lack of vision for you. Is this more of a signal to them committing to accelerating their timeline? Is it just a symptom of them settling on a front office regime? Is it something else? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of everything, but settling on a front office regime really sounds like the best answer to me right now. Uh, It's unfortunate with Igor Kokoshkov. I think most Suns fans were uh, fans of Igor Kokoshkov. This is a guy who spent 18 years in his an assistant coach in the NBA worked really hard to get to where he was, and I hope he gets uh, another job in the league very, very soon. The unfortunate truth is likely that Igor was a goner as soon as Ryan McDonough got fired uh, just before the season started. You know, this trio of James Jones was announced as the interim GM and eventually became full-time GM, uh, but him sort of alongside Trevor Buckstein and then just recently Jeff Bauer those three, we never really got any indication throughout the season that James Jones and Kakashkov were on the same page in the first place. So I think while the firing kind of came out of nowhere for a lot of fans, there was never uh, that much doubt that something like that could happen. The hope now is, regardless of your feelings about Monty Williams, you commit to him for a five-year deal, that hopefully that's a signal that there's going to be some sort of return to normalcy from now on, that this is really the last coaching change because. You know, I don't think this organization can really take any more instability. I don't think players like Devin Booker can really take that much more instability before they uh, are fed up and have officially had enough. Is this Devin Booker's like 10th coach? What is he on now? He's going to ask the same thing. It's fifth? He's had five coaches in five seasons? He's had... Uh, I don't remember, Jeff. He's I don't only been remember. Four seasons, right? He had more coaches than seasons. Yeah, you're He's right. He's about to have his fifth coach in a fifth oh, yeah, season that's true. That's true. because that's true. he had 
Jeff Hornacek, Earl Watson, Jay Triano, and uh, now Igor Kokoshkov, and then Monty Williams will be the fifth. I forgot about the Jay Triano era. Yeah. <laughs> Which was just last season. <laughs> I kind of like it was just last season. Kind of like Jay Triano too. This coaching search, I guess the past two, if we want to include Kokoshkov, at least seemed more thorough than the the Earl watching coaching non-search. Oh, that was that was a dark era. That was the lowest <laughs> point, uh, Earl Watson. And and I thought it was funny. I don't know if you guys heard, Monty Williams went on the Woj pod recently, and they had this um, sort of talk where Monty was specifically saying he hates when people in this business use the word family, which I don't know if it was directly calling out Earl Watson. It probably wasn't, but that was something that stood out to us as a fan base because for an entire year, close to two years, Earl Watson was constantly preaching this sort of, uh, we're a family culture, unconditional love that really just doesn't work at, at the NBA level. Um, so I thought, you know, that was kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, most people are optimistic about the Monty hiring. I do wonder if his deal was shorter, if Tyron Lue would be with the Lakers right now. It's something that I've I've wondered openly. I think the five-year deal, in your point about potential stability, I, I totally agree. But the sticking point with Lue and, and years, and I know there was there's other coaches' contracts that have set the market. Um, but with what Jim Boylan ended up signing for, and then if Monty Williams had signed with a sh- for a shorter term with the Suns, I don't know if he would have went there for a shorter term. I, I wonder if that impacted Ty Lue's thinking with the Lakers at all. That's just my random note on that. Yeah, I think uh, for a veteran coach, I mean, th- this five years is pretty standard. I think what was more strange is when we're seeing these three-year deals. Like, I think Earl Watson got a three-year deal out of Phoenix. Igor Kokoshkov got a three-year deal uh, with these rookie coaches. But this is the first time that Robert Sarver is paying for an NBA head coach that has actually been a head coach before since Alvin Gentry. So we're talking about basically a decade, and that kind of just speaks to you know, overall, the, the instability that this organization has seen over the past decade uh, and, and just hopefully signaling that things are going to change in the future. Um, Andy and I usually alternate questions, but I actually have a stat for this question. So I'm just going to I'm going to seize it and hope that Andy doesn't hate me forever after it. Uh, Devin Booker, still yeah. sort of still sort of a divisive figure in the NBA. I think it's diminished a little bit. Maybe it'll pick up now, though. Uh, since his max extension is kicking in this year. I I just feel like at this point we need to respect sort of the work he's done when you look at the workload he has shouldered. And so when you look at players through their first four seasons and anyone who logged at least 4,000 minutes, so at least 1,000 minutes a season on average, only 15 other players have matched his usage rate, which is – 29 and he has the sixth highest true shooting percentage of the group and the players in front of him include Dwayne Wade, Kevin Durant, Michael Jordan, Joel Embiid and Shaquille O'Neal. And so I know that that's we're looking at efficiency inside a limited pool, but I don't know how there's not at least a level of respect for what he's done and I'm wondering at this point, you know, even the lineups with him when he was their official point guard they pumped in over 111 points per 100 possessions per cleaning the glass. That's not super elite, but it's not even close to terrible. And so I'm wondering at this point, what do you think is the biggest misconception about him? Or why do you think people have been so reluctant to accept his progression or, or improvement over the past four years? Well, winning solves everything. That's the simplest answer. People are reluctant to accept it because the Suns are, are still 
such a bad team. Um, but I'm glad you threw out those stats. I mean, Devin Booker just posted 25 points per game, 58% true shooting as a 22-year-old. Uh, in the last 30 years, the only other player to do that, age 22 or younger, was Michael Jordan. So I think at this point, you know, there, okay. there, there's this link <laughs> that turned out okay. There's this lingering misconception about him being a chucker. But I think you guys know this. When you look at young players on bad teams, the easiest way, uh, or it is often easy enough to tell if they're the real deal or not by looking at efficiency uh, as you compare, you know, things like usage to true shooting like you just did, Dan. And so I think at this point, it's clear that Devin Booker is not Monte Ellis. Uh, he's not Kevin Martin. We don't know exactly how good he is going to be. But I think specifically with listeners of your show, so two things. I think overall the misconception with casual fans out there is probably still that he is a chucker uh, who doesn't contribute to winning. I think your fans are a lot smarter than that. To them, I would say maybe the biggest misconception about Devin Booker is that he was ready to be thrust into a quasi-James Harden role this season when he really wasn't. It's something that was sort of done out of necessity. One of the favorite stats I have about Booker this season, he shot 37.6% on catch-and-shoot threes uh, compared to 29% on pull-ups. And I think that's taking more pull-up threes, more volume there than catch-and-shoot, kind of speaks to the workload that he was carrying this year. He can create offense for others. And as you said, with that cleaning the glass stat, you know, they run a capable offense centered around him. But it's so clear from watching this guy just how much he would benefit, not even necessarily from having a pure point guard next to him in the backcourt, but just someone else with the capability of handling the ball a little bit. It can be another combo guard, but it just has to be someone who can create some of those opportunities for Booker and offense. And I think if he gets that opportunity finally for the first time next season, we'll see things like the true shooting percentage uh, continue to skyrocket up. What do you think about uh, – this has come up here in the last few days, I think, that Phoenix might be targeting a veteran point guard. Have you guys – is there anybody that's sort of on the radar for Suns fans and journalists, podcasters, et cetera? Yeah, well, the problem is, I guess, to this point, kind of struggling to define exactly what a veteran is. Yes. Uh, everyone has sort of different definitions. Frank Lakina, uh, yeah, uh, I, I think there's a lot of people in this fan base who are petrified, especially after Trevor Reza and Tyson Chandler. They want veterans, uh, but they don't necessarily want 33 year old veterans. They want maybe 28 year old veterans, and that's tough in the NBA. Sometimes that's tough to get. So, from a trade standpoint, I mean, everyone's been talking about guys like Drew Holiday and Mike Conley for months. Uh, from a free agency standpoint. You could go a bunch of different options. I mean, it's like, is D'Angelo Russell a veteran at this point? Like, is he old enough to constitute a veteran? Because I'm sure some Suns fans want him. On the other hand, you could go for a legitimately older veteran with playoff experience, like uh, bring Goran Dragic back for a third stint, go after Ricky Rubio, Darren Collison. There's all sorts of options that are being discussed. Uh, but one thing we can all agree on is they need someone better than Tyler Johnson and DeAnthony Melton in it. And Elliot Kobo, because those guys are, are not starting caliber at this level. Um, it's sort of moving on from from Booker. What impressed you the most about Aiton's rookie year? I think a lot of what he did, just like a lot of what many other rookies did, was lost in how good Luka Doncic was out of the gate, and then Trey Young sort of surging afterwards, um, and he was part of the Doncic. He was traded, basically, for, for Doncic, so a lot of the other rookies were overshadowed. What did what stood out to you for Aiden? Was it the passing, the post-craft, his progression as a 
PNR defender or even a rim protector after the All Star break? Was it just something else that we who only zoomed in and watched the Suns a you know a few times every few weeks uh, didn't see? I, I appreciate uh, all of those things that you mentioned. The rim protection maybe didn't really come along uh, <laughs> as much as some Suns fans would like you to believe. Uh, he's a, he's a good defender out in space, but the rim protection has a way to go. Uh, what impressed me most about DeAndre Ayton is this is a guy who came in with a polished body, and we knew that. Like He came in, which is rare for NBA big men, with an NBA big man body, and yet he is already so polished at the traditional aspects of scoring as a big man, uh, like pick and roll finishing and, and posting up in a way that most guys just aren't. Uh, he finished, uh, this is per synergy, he finished 75th percentile on post-ups, 59th percentile as a pick and roll finisher. The synergy play type data on NBA.com only goes back four years. But so what I did is I looked at every power forward and rookie power forward and center from the past four years, kind of to get a feel for how efficient he was specifically in the post-up and as a pick and roll finisher compared to some other guys. Um, and of nine big men who logged heavy possessions in both of those play types, Aiton ranked second out of nine in post-up efficiency behind only Jokic. And he ranked third of the nine in pick and roll uh, efficiency behind Embiid and Porzingis. Uh, he was better than a guy like Carl Anthony Towns in both aspects. Uh, he Overall, he was just better than a lot of these guys in, in these aspects. And so I think he already has that down. He already has a way to be a 20-point-per-game score at the very least at the NBA level. Uh, the question for him now, the only two concerns really surrounding him are he has this face-up game. Can he extend it out to three-point range on offense? And then defensively, it's rim protection. He did shoot what I was surprised to find when I was looking this up a few weeks ago for something I was writing, over 58% on hook shots too, which is just absolutely absurd for a yeah. rookie. Do you see, I know you mentioned him maybe extending his face-up game to three-point range. He has a lot of the standstill stuff down in those positions, it seems like. Do you see maybe an expansion to where they'll ask him to attack more off the dribble from those positions? Or are, do you think they're just more focused on him extending his range in general? Well, unfortunately, I think that kind of depends on who you bring in at power forward this year because that position is such a disaster. Uh, like, you know, you can envision two different offenses. Like, say the Suns, one name, and we're probably going to talk about the draft at some point, but, you know, one name that Suns fans are throwing out there as a possibility at number six is Brandon Clark. If the Suns were actually going to bring in Brandon Clark and start him next to DeAndre Ayton next year, then probably you're just asking DeAndre Ayton to extend his range and shoot threes. Um, if they go after a free agent like a Nikola Mirotic, then you can structure a much different offense around that. I think they absolutely should have him uh, include some more off-the-bounce attacks. Uh, I think you know the, the one frustrating thing we've seen out of DeAndre Ayton so far in comparing him to a big like Joel Embiid who had similar efficiency his rookie year is Ayton's really a finesse player. And this also sort of explains why he isn't in the highlight reel so much is he's kind of boring to watch. And, and I think most Suns fans can admit that. Uh, he's still sort of avoiding contact. Joel Embiid was averaging like six free throws per game his rookie season. Aiton, I think, is about two and a half. Uh, if he could sort of just force as much contact, I think I calculated at one point, if he could force as much contact as a guy like Joel Embiid did as a rookie uh, and keep all of the same percentages across the board, his true shooting, which was already absurdly high, would go up another two to three percent right there. So I think the next step for DA is really just trying to find ways to be more aggressive. Uh, and that includes not just settling for those face-up jumpers, but having something to pull out of your arsenal, uh, something in your toolkit where you can force yourself to get to the free throw line. 
I was impressed um, <clears throat> with Aiton, particularly on the passing. I know he, he wound up at 1.8 assists a game, which doesn't jump off the page to a lot of people. But I think in those first couple weeks, and I don't think I actually know because I looked it up while we've been talking. Um, first about month of the season, he was averaging almost three assists per game. For the whole season, he wound up with five games of at least five assists. I didn't think he had that coming into the NBA. And I think the the playmaking five is becoming a really, really important wrinkle in the NBA. Um, so do you, do you think he has some long-term potential as a guy that you can run some offense through? Oh, totally. And I think Monty Williams probably sees that too. And the comparison that, you know, is, is natural to make, this isn't a comparison that I'm making defensively. Uh, but the last time Monty Williams was a head coach, he had Anthony Davis. And that was a much different offense with those Pelicans it essentially wasn't a modern NBA offense as we think of it today. Uh, you know, they had guys like Ryan Anderson on the roster. They still weren't shooting a lot of threes. They were running a lot of their offense through Anthony Davis elbow touches. And I can see why you would bring in a guy like Monty Williams to then coach DeAndre Ayton and potentially see the same thing um, with, you know, running your offense through him in a similar manner. Now, of course, that makes it all the more important that he develops some of those other off-the-bounce instincts. You can really only run an offense through him like that uh, if he becomes more of a triple threat out of that elbow position. Uh, but I absolutely agree with you, Andy. He was a good passer his rookie year. Uh, maybe not a ton of assists from a volume level, but not a lot of big men do uh, mm -hmm. get that many assists as rookies. And I definitely think there's some potential for growth there in the future. When you're selling online, getting your orders out can be a real pain. Time-consuming, expensive, so many carriers to choose from. How do you know you're making the best choice? That's why you need ShipStation.com. It's the fastest, easiest, and most affordable way to manage and ship your orders. ShipStation helps you get orders out quickly, save money on shipping costs, and keep your customers happy. No matter where you're selling, Amazon, Etsy, your own website, ShipStation brings all your orders into one simple interface, making them really easy to manage from any device, even your cell phone. And right now, Hardwood Knox podcast listeners can try ShipStation free, free, for 60 days when you use promo code BLUE. There's absolutely no risk. You can start your free trial without even entering your credit card information. ShipStation works with all of the major carriers, including the United States Post Office, FedEx, UPS, even Amazon Fulfillment. So you can compare and choose the best shipping solution for you and your customer. No wonder ShipStation is the number one choice of online sellers. You'll ship more in less time with the best rates available. Just visit ShipStation.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in BLUE. That's ShipStation.com, then enter promo code BLUE, B-L-U-E, ShipStation.com. Make ship happen. You had made a case for when we recorded a Blue Wire Buckets episode together uh, right after the All-NBA teams, all-rookies, all-defense, all those squads were announced, and you made a case that Mikael Bridges was – a snub, not a, you weren't saying that necessarily no one, uh, everyone in front of him, you singled out. I can't remember who you singled out that he could have made it over, but it wasn't saying that. It was Herder. He was this, yeah, Herder, that he wasn't a huge snub, but deserved more consideration than he got. What, what is it that most sells you um, on his future after watching him as a rookie? Well, if you somehow haven't watched Mikhail Bridges play defense yet, then like that's the, that's his calling card. You need to go out and watch. Um, we have a YouTube channel, the Timeline Podcast, uh, or the Timeline YouTube channel. We posted like an 11-minute defensive compilation of Mikhail Bridges back in like January that you can go watch. Uh, on ball, off ball, he's got great instincts. 
going to be a great defender. One thing that stood out to me aside from that, that sort of surprised me, like it's always impressive to me when you see a low usage guy who isn't asked to be that creative offensively, but still maintains the ratio assist to turnover wise, you know, Bridges averaged 2.1 assists to 0.9 turnovers per game, which I thought was pretty impressive for a guy that was basically just standing in the corner for a good amount of his possessions. Uh, I know my co-host, Mike, uh, Mike V. Hill, often makes the comparison like maybe this could even potentially be a Batum situation a few years down the line where he he can become a little bit more creative and uh, become more of a playmaker. Uh, but I definitely think defense is going to be his calling card. Mikhail's uh, maybe going to struggle a little bit offensively, uh, but he'll at least be a good enough 3 and D player that he can stick around in the league uh, as a winning high impact role player for a long time. My much maligned uh, average player rankings thing that I do um, where you take 10 catch all metrics, you average the ranks of those metrics to sort everyone in the league. Um, first team rookie for all, for, for what it's worth, if it had been chosen by that methodology would have been Luka Doncic, Mitchell Robinson, Deandre Ayton, Jaron Jackson, and Michael Bridges. So Bridges Bridges was a top five rookie according to a bunch of well, advanced numbers, and his league yeah, wide, I mean, league wide rank was just outside the top one hundred and fifty. So he he was fantastic. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I think he finished fourth in VORP uh, for the rookie class, and it makes sense, you know, that Mitchell Robinson would be in there too. Mitchell Robinson dominated advanced numbers. <laughs> yeah. Um, if, if he had played more, I think he might have pushed Doncic for, for tops in that particular exercise. Um, I had I don't think you think of a 3 and D guy as some of the games I watched of him, He was I had zero idea he was supposed to be so good in the post. And then I had also had zero idea, and I love – this is the real question I wanted to ask. Did you know slash why is one of his nicknames on basketball reference listed as noodles? Oh, those suck. We Mike and I talk about this all the time. Like basketball, <laughs> re- <laughs> basketball reference uh, nicknames are, are god awful. Uh, I think we were making fun of some of the ones for Luka Doncic once. Uh, I don't even remember what they are anymore. Um, but noodles, no. Inspector Go Go Gadget is on there too. No, no one calls That's him any long. of these things. Look, Way I have no long. problem with noodles. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> it's it's if not I could bad. Call someone noodles, I would. <laughs> No, to this point, as far as I know, we've been like, you know, throwing around some ideas of Bridges nicknames and nothing stuck. So by all means, if you're listening out there and you want to be the guy that coins the Mikhail Bridges nickname for when there's the the 1% chance that he becomes the next Kawhi Leonard, go out and do it now. And uh, we'd be appreciative of that. I don't think because I'm going to call him noodles until someone changes it. That's just (laughs) I just decided that This, this is the first player I believe I've ever seen with five basketball reference nicknames. He's doing what are the other ones? Noodles, Inspector Go-Go Gadget, String Bean, Brittle, yeah. and Praying Mantis. Brittle is objectively terrible. <laughs> Speaking of objectively terrible, one of the ones they have for <laughs> Luka Doncic is Swaggy L. Oh. Oh, that's awful. Yeah. <laughs> that... Speaking of objectively terrible, you guys want to move on to Josh Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, are you uh... – well, are you out? That was my only – everyone else I had notes on for the question. My question for you on Josh Jackson was, are you out on Josh Jackson? Yes, and I think the listeners to my podcast know this, and I think I might catch some flack for that because not all Suns fans are out on Josh Jackson, uh, but I am. <laughs> it's It's hard, guys. Josh Jackson is hard. No one even knows what his strengths are, or rather – 
Like if you're skipping appearances, that's what it starts off. <laughs> if you're two years into the NBA and your biggest strength is your motor, you don't really have much going for you. Like you need to have more skills at this point. I'll give you an example. Josh Jackson, after the All-Star break, went on this tear where he shot 38% from three. Sort of single-handedly brought his three-point percentage up several points uh, on the season overall to make it look like he improved a lot as a three-point shooter. That would be great if the rest of his offensive game was clicking. After the All-Star break, Josh Jackson shot 38% from three. He shot 41% on shots less than eight feet. Like almost no difference in the expected value that, well, I mean, difference in the expected value because three is more than two, but almost no difference in the percentage on those two shots. Like he'll go through stages where he is just such a reckless offensive player that his finishing numbers are terrible compared to other guys who like to play the passing lanes, like a guy like Kelly Oubre. Uh, Josh Jackson is just so much worse at finishing in transition, and it's all because of the turnovers. Uh, his His vision, he's a willing passer, but he struggles to execute. And I think that sort of just kind of describes the Josh Jackson experience in general. Like he has the tools, but the execution is just not there. And it makes you wonder if maybe he could work out on another NBA team that was less of a clusterfuck. I think if Josh Jackson was hearing this, he would defend himself by saying, hey, I've had three coaches in two years, uh, starting out with Earl Watson and then Jay Triano and Igor Kokoshkov. And that's a fair criticism for him to make of the organization at large. Uh, but the end result has just not been pretty. Yeah, I usually I try to give guys a pass for the first two, maybe three years in the league, um, especially on advanced stats. But the track record of guys who are as bad as Josh Jackson has been um, is not great. I mean, there are success stories of guys who turn it around after a really rough first couple of years, but that one to one assist to turnover ratio, which you alluded to is not great. Um, sub 50 true shooting both years. He, he, I, I think you use the word reckless and I think that's probably a, a pretty good way to describe him. And even if he's, like you said, he's a willing passer. If you don't have it, it's still easier to defend those guys and probably harder to keep any turnover woes that you have in check when you're not really a threat to hit pull up jumpers. And I'm not, I mean, his turnover percentage, um, I don't even I don't even have it pulled up. But if if he isn't gonna finish at the rim, if he's not gonna have a consistent pull up jumper, he's just there's really not a point in having him on ball. And this comes with a disclaimer that I thought he was gonna be really good coming out of Kansas. I was super high on him. I, I like that draft. Here's and, here, um, here here's the number. Sorry to cut you off. Um, so I wanted to see if there was anybody who had a worse box plus minus over their first two seasons. Oh, God. Um, among the 293 players in the three-point era who played at least as many minutes as Jackson in their first two seasons, can you guys guess where Jackson is um, in box plus minus? 293 only, guys. Only in front of Andrew Wiggins. <laughs> Andrew Wiggins isn't that bad. Come on. <laughs> two, um, go ahead. Wait, there's 293? Yeah, 293 total guys. I'm going to guess he's 285th. He is 293rd, and it's not close. <laughs> oh, man. Who's, what is the difference between 293 um, and 292? This, this is, like, shocking to me. So the so he's minus 4.6 and 293rd. Al Thornton is 292nd, and he's minus 
The oh, difference wow. between Jackson and Thornton is about the same as the difference between Thornton and number 275. I also haven't heard Thornton's name in a while. That was a fun exercise. <laughs> Um, so I was I was actually doing that search, hoping to find some players behind him who turned it around, and that obviously didn't happen for me. Is there is there even a player who carved out a decent like eight year role player career? Here's the bottom. Here's the bottom. Uh, uh, we'll we'll just say ten or eleven of that list: Josh Jackson, Al Thornton, Ronnie Cycli, Lamont Murray, Daryl Griffith, Drew Gooden. Rex Chapman, there's one who stuck around for a while. Marvin Williams, he he turned it around. Big Country Bryant Reeves, uh, near and dear to my heart. Um, Michael Beasley <laughs> and Zach Levine. And I, I would say Levine is one that we can probably say is is starting to turn it around. Well, <laughs> um, more on that than Josh, I anticipated. Moving on from Josh Jackson. Who's more – because we're going to get into what the Suns might do at point guard more in depth there shortly, but who's more important to Phoenix's future right now? Is it Okobo or Melton, just looking at how the backcourt partner rotation next to Devin Booker is, is just in so much flux? This is unfortunate because the clear answer is DeAnthony Melton, but the Suns kind of fucked this. Uh, Melton is only signed for one more year, and Okobo is signed for three. So if the decision comes down this summer to which guy are you going to keep, it feels like there's a strong chance that you keep a Kobo hoping that you give him some more time and he'll grow. Next to Devin Booker, I mean, the, the ideal archetype for DeAnthony Melton is that he's the next Patrick Beverly. Yeah. Uh, he, he finished second in the NBA in deflections per 36 behind Nerlens Noel, among guys who played at least like 10 minutes per game. Um, he shot... Not great from three overall, but he shot 36% on his uh, catch-and-shoot threes. Uh, so there's really room for a good player next to Devin Booker there. Um, he's a he's an okay creator, not a very good one. Uh, and overall, I mean, the negatives about DeAnthony Melton, his finishing ability is horrible. Uh, we just really didn't see any of that out of him all season long. But you sort of contrast that. You're like You've got a player there who plays some great perimeter defense, really plays the passing lanes well. Um, in comparison to a Kobo who kind of doesn't turn the ball over, but doesn't really do anything well. Uh, Elliot Kobo was a guy I was a big fan of actually, you know, coming into last year's draft. Um, and I thought it made a lot of sense to take him at 31. And I still think he definitely does have some potential, but what we were advertised with Kobo was this ability to be an off the bounce, uh, shot creator. And that just really didn't didn't shine through in his rookie season. I wouldn't necessarily expect it to. Uh, but again, it just comes down to a really difficult decision. I think Melton is a much better fit for Booker. But if you've got one year of Melton versus three years of Okobo and you can only keep one, I honestly don't know what they're going to do. I don't know what you guys would do in that situation. Well, Okobo had a higher turnover percentage than uses rate, and that's that's very impressive. <laughs> <laughs> I like the Kobo like too, coming like- out. What's that? Oh, go ahead, Andy. I was going to say I like Melton more too, but you've you've identified an issue that I probably wouldn't have even thought about. Um, the contract situation is not ideal there. Um, Melton, in the last 20 years, there's only six guys who had a better steal percentage in their rookie season. Um, and I don't know how predictive that is. I know some people have done studies about how predictive a college steal percentage is for NBA success. So I imagine a rookie steal percentage maybe has some – similarities i love his defense um and i when you said he could be sort of their patrick beverly type that's exactly what i was thinking too i I think 
Devin Booker is a guy that you want the ball in his hands. Obviously, you'd like to take some responsibility away from it and maybe lighten the load a little bit, but you don't want somebody who's going to dominate the ball. And Melton seems to be that sort of Beverly archetype. So he would make, or Melton, did I say Melton? Yeah, Melton would be yep. that kind of archetype. So, um, yeah, I mean, if they could prioritize him and, and maybe sign him to a longer deal, extend him, whatever they got to do, I, I certainly like him more than a Kobo. I, I, I haven't given up on a Kobo, but there are there are some red flags. Dan just pointed out a huge one. <laughs> Well, his I liked him because from the probably the minimal tape that I watched before that draft on him was he his game looked really smooth and and as Sam said that didn't translate to the NBA. But I asked the question in part because of the contract situation and if the Suns are so motivated to add another point guard this year, if you make that investment after already having invested max money in Devin Booker and whether that point guard comes via trade or or free agency. I was just curious whether then can you go ahead and pay DeAnthony Melton next summer? Yeah. Um. Give, given their, uh, can you? Oh, excuse me. I skipped ahead. Do you like Ubre's fit with this team? And the the question follow up question to that though, are you going to like it a lot less if they do get another ball handler? And what is the price range that you'd be willing to to keep him at as he enters restricted free agency? There is a general frenzy among the Suns fan base uh, about Kelly Oubre. They love Kelly Oubre. I love Kelly Oubre. Uh, but the thing is, you got to talk about it in terms – the reason people love Kelly Oubre is partially because of his on-court play, but a lot of it isn't. Uh, this whole Valley Boys trend, like it used to be the Suns thing was the timeline, which is like the off-brand version of the process. That's where we get our podcast uh, podcast name from. And now all anyone is talking about is Kelly Oubre took one Instagram picture with the caption, uh, or maybe it was even on Twitter, I don't remember, with a caption where the Valley Boys, uh, hashtag Valley Boys, and it got so far, other Suns players started doing it. He's a guy who really meshed uh, from day one with guys like Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton, and that is important for chemistry going forward. Uh, and he's even gone so far as I think he trademarked Valley Boys and is going to come out with his own merchandise line this summer. So that's like, you know, is he a perfect fit? I don't know. Ubre, the the most optimistic Suns fans were this uh, this season was there was like this two to three week period in March where Ubre was inserted into the starting lineup and the Suns proceeded to go six and six uh, over a span of twelve games. In those twelve games, they beat Milwaukee. Uh, they beat Milwaukee twice this season actually, but they beat Milwaukee during during these twelve games. They beat Golden State. Uh, they had close losses to other good playoff teams like Portland and San Antonio. Ubre throughout all this stretch averaged 20 points, six rebounds, two steals per game on good shooting numbers across the board. And then, bam, Ubre got injured. Tyler Johnson got injured. TJ Warren was still injured. DeAndre Ayton and Rashawn Holmes were injured at various points. And then suddenly you get into this final stretch of the season, these final 10 or 15 games where it's basically Devin Booker against the world and he's putting up 55 points per game, but the Suns are still losing because at that point they just didn't have NBA caliber talent. So that's sort of where all the the, the context, the backstory of where Oubre, uh, where the hype comes from. I don't think he can sustainably put up 20 points per game as a third option scorer on good efficiency for an entire season. And like I think you were alluding to with one of those questions, if they get another ball handler, one of Oubre's biggest weaknesses is his tunnel vision. So I don't know how well he's going to fit in as a fourth option scorer, but he's done so much for the Suns chemistry already in an organization that is so unstable 
that I think you can't really afford to let him go. Uh, and you kind of have to bank on him continuing to build on that potential. I like his defensive fit, like Mikhail Bridges. You know, he plays good defense when he wants to, essentially. And like Mikhail Bridges and DeAnthony Melton, he's a long guy who likes to play the passing lanes, likes to be aggressive on defense. And you can see a scheme start to be built around Devin Booker, uh, sort of out of that philosophy. So I think the Suns will really try to keep Oubre. Is it the best fit going forward? Uh, that remains to be seen. I feel like he's going to need to improve his catch and shoot percentage if he's going to have a chance at yeah. fitting in, even if they don't necessarily sign another ball handler. Because I don't know how much freedom you want to give him with the ball in his hands, even if he is your your third option. And and that's there's going to be limited opportunity there anyway. And so you'd like to see him shoot better than you know thirty two, thirty three percent on catch and shoot trays. Totally. And and did you ask uh, what's a fair price? Did I skip over that accidentally? Yeah, you didn't really skip it. I would just be, you know, free agency is going to be so tough to predict this year, and the restricted free agent pool is so shallow, um, yeah. or at least bereft of players who are going to warrant those big offers. I think if you had to come up with three players who might get some over-the-top, ultra-aggressive bids, Ubre might be one of them with D'Angelo Russell and Malcolm Brogdon. And so yeah. I'm just – at what price do you say you want Phoenix to walk away at? Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think you go above $15 million a year, and is that's where I'm uncomfortable. Uh, where do you walk away? That's tough. You know, I should have looked at some some other... I was, other... I'm surprised you said 15. I was thinking like 12 to 13 would make me just like very fidgety. Uh, that would make me really nervous. I'm already fidgety, but it, it's sort of given, <laughs> given what you... <laughs> given what you said with the with the shallow pool, I think 15 is about what he's going to get. But like you said, it's it's tough to predict this year. I don't know. I mean... There's so much money out there. There's Yeah, there's just a lot of money out there. And, and Phoenix doesn't have it, unfortunately. <laughs> well, that's a good segue. So they're basically better off. There's a chance that they won't be, but it won't be by much. But they're basically better off functioning as a team over the cap if they're going to carry Ubre's restricted free agency hold, which I think is $9.6 million. Are there any free agents you like for them that fall into that nine to ten million range? Basically, the non-taxpayers mid-level exception that you think can actually help them a great deal. Yeah, sure. I mean, at point guard, uh, you know, you can get rid of DeAnthony Melton if you just sign Patrick Beverly. Uh, or of- you can have Patrick Beverly turn DeAnthony Melton into the next Patrick Beverly. Yeah, no, and that's better. But <laughs> but if we're talking about mid-level options, uh, Darren Collison would be a great fit next to Devin Booker for probably around $10 million a year. Um, I think you could throw an interesting offer sheet, as long as we're talking about restricted free agents, at Tyus Jones or DeLon Wright. It's risky, um, but you could definitely do that. Uh, and then their other big area of need is power forward. Now, unfortunately, I think a lot of the power forwards that I'm most interested in, the starting caliber guys – uh, the Aminus, the Miritich's, uh, Thad Young are above 10 million for sure. They're probably less, they're less than 15 million, but they're above 10. So if we're talking about a guy for nine to 10 million, maybe Noah Vonley, um, I'm less high on him now than I was at the beginning of the season. And I'm starting to wonder if his, uh, performance out of the gate, those first couple months with the Knicks was, was a bit of a fluke, but at the very least he shows some promise as a knockdown shooter, uh, if he's wide open from three. Uh, and he would really help the Suns' rebounding problem. Some, one thing we didn't even touch on yet is a lot of people make a big deal about the Suns not having a playmaker this year, and, and that was bad. But they were the worst rebounding team in the NBA 
Uh, and there was just no chance for them to win games starting guys like TJ Warren at the four. Uh, the, the rebounding was a travesty, and it put both DeAndre Aiden and Rashawn Holmes at the center position into a, a really bad position. So regardless of if we're talking about 9 to $10 million in cap space or if they're going to make some moves to kind of work in some more uh, and, and go after a bigger fish, they're going to really look to solve the rebounding woes at Power Forward. That was another good segue by you. Um, can you see him doing anything to go to to make that cap space cap space and go after a bigger splashier name? And who might that uh, be? Yeah. Um, well, so again, like it, I think it would only take you a few million more to go after a guy like Miritich or Aminu or um, who else did I say? Thad Young. But there's there's a potential situation. You know, maybe you want to have an off season. You can keep Ubre's cap hold. And still re-sign him over the cap, but you can still get to twenty-two million, about twenty-two million in cap space with a Tyler Johnson wave and stretch the final year of his deal. Now, do you really want to, you know, harm your long-term flexibility like that over a team that ultimately might not be that good? I don't know, um, but I could, I could see them potentially doing it and then using twenty-two million in cap space to get a package of. A couple of the guys I just mentioned, like you go after a guy like Thad Young at Power Forward or, or Miritich at Power Forward, and then also throw an offer sheet at Tyus Jones or DeLon Wright or some variation, some combination of all the guys I just mentioned. Uh, is there a single free agent that they would want to get in that 20 to $25 million range? I think if there's even any chance that D'Angelo Russell uh, is actually could actually be had, and I, I think there's not much of a chance there, but if Kyrie or Kemba are actually insistent about going to Brooklyn, then I would expect the Suns to make a run at D'Angelo Russell uh, for obvious reasons, his connection with Devin Booker. Uh, but I, I think that's a little bit less likely. Maybe a guy like Tobias Harris too, but I think that's very unlikely. It is staggering that Tyler Johnson is set to make $19.2 million next season. Summer of 2016 was wild. <laughs> that is insane. Holy they, cow. They, and they have like, when you talk about actually clearing the cap space, if you want to keep Uber, they just don't have, I don't think you look at any of their other money as just dumpable. Like, are you even willing to trade Josh Jackson to get, to yes. just get his seven? Okay, well then there you go. Yeah, there might yeah, be a so team that's going to take his seven point one million into cap space. Yeah, the other avenue that I talked about. Well, and here's you know the way that Suns fans will structure it. It's like if Kevin Durant really wanted to come to Phoenix, he once said that Phoenix is one of his favorite cities. So naturally, um, snakes <laughs> snakes love the warmth, and so the desert is perfect for him. But you could get to max contract uh, cap space. By doing all that, waving, uh, waving, stretching Tyler Johnson, and then also cap dumping guys like TJ Warren and Josh Jackson, um, and so you could also save your long term flexibility by keeping Tyler Johnson, uh, but finding a suitor for either TJ Warren or Josh Jackson. I think in particular, like there's probably some team out there that would be willing to take on TJ Warren uh, for I'd not much. TJ Warren. Warren. Yeah, yeah, if I was the Nets, I'd be like, you throw TJ Warren right to us. Yeah. So I think that's definitely a possible avenue. But at that point, it's like TJ Warren is, you know, this is not Josh Jackson, who's one of the worst players in the NBA. This is, a, he's actually a pretty solid player. So you better be getting a good return there in free agency. And we're talking about Phoenix. Can they get a good return in free agency? We don't know. If they did carve out max space and to do that and then throw money at a restricted free agent when there's a chance that you might not even get them, that's tough to justify. But if they were going to be that, just invested in any restricted free agent. And I've, I've probably said him for a few teams, but I would go Malcolm Brogdon before I went for 
D'Angelo Russell, just because maybe the Bucks, if you, I don't have a problem giving him close to the max, even though his upside is probably limited, just because he fits on all thirty teams to me. And if the Bucks start worrying about paying Middleton and him, and they already signed Bledsoe, they have to worry about Brook Lopez. Uh, I that would be a guy. If again, if they were going to go the route of let's really maximize our cap space this year, he would be the guy that I probably want them to target more than anybody. Yeah, that's a really good name too. I, I would definitely go after Brogdon. Harry's Razors is helping Blue Wire listeners with a better shaving experience. Go to harrys.com slash bluewire to save $10 on a value trial set, which includes a five-blade razor with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. Enough with the cheap razors. Go try Harry's now. It's just $3 for our loyal listeners. Harry's has fixed shaving by combining a simple, clean design with quality and durable blades at a fair price. Harry's founders were tired of paying for razors that were overpriced and overdesigned. Harry's bought a world-class blade factory in Germany that's been making quality blades for over 95 years. Join the 10 million who have tried Harry's. Claim your official trial offer by going to harrys.com slash bluewire. All of Harry's blades come with a 100% quality guarantee. If you don't love your shave, let them know and they'll give you a full refund. Again, make sure to go to harrys.com slash bluewire to redeem your razor for only $3. Given their wing depth, do you think that they're going to be ripe for a trade? Do you think it's stupid for them to dangle the, the number six pick in talks? Is there any players that you think they can should they target? And this is all just related because it's you mentioned TJ Warren, and you already talked about the issues of uh, the rebounding pairing if you play him and Aiton together at the five and four, respectively. Do you view him as a long term piece for the Suns still, or does he just look like this guy who's more of a trade asset for them at this point? I think uh, I have viewed him as a trade asset. Well, I view him as a trade asset now. I think a lot of Suns fans going back have viewed him as a trade asset for years. Uh, but yeah, he's kind of not a young player anymore. Now that he's finished his fifth season, he, he probably is what he's going to be. And it's unfortunate with TJ because he improved immensely as a three point shooter this year. And that's really tough to do. He had the best three point shooting turnaround of any player in the NBA this season. And he's still, despite that, he just has too many shortcomings that make him, he's probably a positive impact player, uh, but barely because the defense is still not there. And the playmaking is still not there. The playmaking really isn't there. TJ needs to add one of those skills to his arsenal still, which is maybe still possible in a year six. Uh, If he wants to go from being a guy who can carve out a long NBA career playing for bad teams to being a guy who can really be uh, an impact player on a playoff team. Uh, Because he's a talented scorer, clearly, but he's not quite enough of a talented score to be you know anyone's first or second option on a 50 win team obviously so he needs to have something else uh, and so far he doesn't and couple that with the rebounding issues they played him at the power forward position this year out of necessity they shouldn't do that he's a three long term and, and teams need to see him as a three uh, so his pairing with Aiton is not a good one and he's definitely a trade asset um, any players they should target uh, also to answer your other question uh, the Suns definitely are going to be considering trading that sixth pick. No doubt about it in my mind. The question is more so if you're going hunting for a star and you don't want to trade Devin Booker, DeAndre Ayton, the best package you can create for a star player at this point is the sixth pick in what might be a historically weak draft. Mikhail Bridges, who we talked about earlier as 
a, a very impressive defender, but maybe a limited ceiling. And then couple some other first round picks or, or whatever else, guys like TJ Warren, who are decent players, but no star potential. It's hard to see the Suns putting together an actual superstar package uh, with, you know, dangling those sorts of assets. Like, let's say a guy like Bradley Beal actually hit the trade market for Washington. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, 20 other teams would be competing with Phoenix. And the sixth pick, TJ Warren and Mikhail Bridges probably isn't going to get it done at that point. So I think there are a lot of players they could target, uh, but they're kind of dealing you know they don't it's not the ryan mcdonough era anymore where they had this deep chest full of assets that they could just kind of dangle you know sort of danny ainge ask out in boston and and you could put together these really appealing trade assets they have to be very careful uh and look to maximize working with the little bit that they still have what do you think of a tj warren for spencer dimory swap uh yeah that sounds great to me I, I would do it in a heartbeat. And I think most Suns fans, it's hard to get Suns fans to agree on any sort of trade. Um, but I think TJ Warren for Spencer Dinwiddie, that's that's a pretty obvious yes for the Suns, at least. Um, we do have some listener questions teed up. They will step on the toes of what we just talked about, but we'll, we'll just force you to give us maybe some more definitive answers or something. This, this first one made me laugh. I had to mute my microphone before as I was reading it. <laughs> Uh, it's from Jake Wild at Wild Thoughts with two S's. Do you think we'll be good now that we added Beasley and Gortat? And do you think we'll be able to find a taker for Dragic? Uh, you know, Dragic is, I'm not sure. You know, he had that one good quarter against the Spurs in the playoffs. But outside of that, he's been uh, pretty unremarkable so far as a point guard. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't know if there's any team that's going to be willing to take him. I don't really see much of a future for him in this league. <laughs> TJ from Twitter, at TJ from Twitter, how dumb would it be for the Suns to trade the number six pick for Mike Conley? I don't think it would be dumb at all. Why are, like, why are people saying that? Okay, so well, let's, let's reason this through a little bit. Mike Conley is old. He's you know not got an ideal contract situation, but he's a perfect fit for Devin Booker in the backcourt. And at a certain point, th- there's not going to be any perfect player that shows up on the trade market. This is what I keep saying on our podcast. If Damian Lillard shows up on the trade market, he ain't coming to Phoenix. I just talked about how Phoenix doesn't have the assets to execute a trade for a perfect player like that, but they might just have the assets to execute a trade for Mike Conley. Uh, And I mean, the sixth pick in this draft is just not that valuable. I, I can have Mike Conley over Darius Garland or Kobe White. I take that in an instant Maybe that's being a little bit short-sighted, but you know, I really do still believe that the Suns are only a couple of solid veteran players away and another year of growth out of uh, Booker, Bridges, and Aiton away uh, from being a solid team. So I think that's that's a pretty easy yes. I don't think they'd be stupid at all. What do you think, Andy? I echo just about everything that was said there. Um, the, like you mentioned earlier, this is a pretty weak draft. Um, number six shouldn't... <laughs> have a ton of value. So yeah, I mean, if you, if you want a veteran point guard and it's going to take number six to grease the wheels on a trade, I think you do it in a heartbeat. Um, who, this is from uh, Illuminati at Illuminati spelled with a seven instead of an I. Mello. Uh, who, who are the, Mello. who, who are the veteran point guards you would want the Suns or could you see the Suns targeting outside of Mike Conley? And I know you already mentioned Patrick Beverly as one. Uh, yeah. Darren Collison, um, was higher on my radar, 
I didn't know that Darren Collison had a domestic battery incident a couple years ago, actually. That kind of slipped under my radar. I was doing more research on him. I was like, oh, this is the perfect fit for Devin Booker in the backcourt. And then I saw that and I was like, ooh, you know, might want might yeah, want a better discourse, culture. Uh, is good about sort of tabling that. People, yeah. uh, they, they bury that pretty quickly. Yeah. My, so, you know, that's, but that's a guy. Um, Terry Rozier has playoff experience. Oh, boy. <laughs> but... but I obviously wouldn't touch that with a thousand mile pole. This isn't a Terry Rozier fan pod. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> yeah, few of us are these days. Um, the this one's from Barney Gumble at Shumkat. Um, which free agents will they let walk, and and which incoming free agents do you think are going to come back? And maybe this is someone who's just really high on Rashawn Holmes and Troy Daniels. Oh, Rashawn Holmes, I think they will try to bring back, actually. Um, they should be Rashawn able to. Holmes, Bigs don't get, unless they're Anthony Davis or Carl Anthony Towns, they're not going to get huge dollars in free agency anymore. Well, <laughs> yeah, anymore, because I was going to say, unless it's 2016 and Rashawn Holmes would be walking away with a Biombo-esque contract of $16 million a year. But uh, he, I like to say he was one of only kind of four to maybe five good players that the Suns had last year. Uh, he was really solid. It's not easy to find a guy. I think he averaged per 36, 17 points, 10 rebounds, two and a half blocks on like 60%, maybe even like 65% true shooting even. Uh, something ridiculous for for a back uh, backup spot. So I think they're going to try and bring Rashawn Holmes back. Um, and I think they really should as long as that's uh, at a reasonable amount, like five to seven million a year, maybe. I don't know. Um, but Dragon Bender's gone. Jimmer Fredette is gone. Uh, Are you okay, Andy? Yeah, rest in peace, man. (laughs) Troy Daniels. Actually, justice for Troy Daniels, dude. I want him. Troy Daniels is going to be like uh, the next Daniel House. That's what I hope. Like he's going to leave the Suns. He's going to leave all the dysfunction. And then some playoff team is going to scoop him up and he's just going to be hitting clutch shots in playoff games. That's what I hope the future holds for Troy Daniels. But he's definitely not going to be a Phoenix Sun anymore. Uh, And I can't remember if they have any other free agents off the top of my head. Oh, Jamal Crawford. Uh, Jamal Crawford should be gone, but he might actually be brought back because James Jones might just be crazy enough to do it. You don't think he's like a good culture-setting guy? Oh, he is a good culture-setting guy. But, I mean, if he comes back, he just you can't let Jamal Crawford touch the floor anymore. I don't care how many four-point plays. I don't care how many 50-point 50 <laughs> 50 games. Um, yeah, but, but James Jones really likes Jamal Crawford. Uh, so he he honestly might be back unless they're really trying to maximize their cap space. Jamal Crawford is one of my favorite cases of like don't trust NBA players with uh, player evaluation because <laughs> everybody still thinks Jamal Crawford is amazing. Dude can get yeah, buckets I mean, at the age of eighty. That's impressive. <laughs> <laughs> a good crossover will play a lot of tricks on people's minds. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, well, and then Kelly Oubre, if you had a guess, it's just he'll be back. Yeah, I think they're bringing him back unless, you know, Kevin Durant's willing to come here and you have to uh, renounce the rights to his cap hold. I think Oubre's back for sure. Keep that in mind, Suns fans. Uh, the last one I'll have teed up then. Are Do you think they're going to – this is from – and I adjusted his question, but it's from the Dylan Celtics at DG Celtics 9. Do you see them being willing to take a chance on a young point guard? Or are they just going to be so focused on a win-now vet? Because they do have that number six pick, which is going to put them in Garland or, or Kobe White territory. And so I'm wondering if they would 
uh, draft those guys with the intention of of keeping them and actually viewing them as a solution, or are they going to be so zeroed in on on just the vets this summer? No, I think it's totally a, a very distinct possibility. Uh, but I think what's more likely is they would do a combination of both. They would take Darius Garland or Kobe White, but not make the mistake of years past and entrust the starting point guard position to a guy like that from day one. Uh, they would take Garland or White and then still try to sign someone in free agency. Now, it probably wouldn't be Malcolm Brogdon anymore. It wouldn't be D'Angelo Russell. You could still go out, uh, get your, you know, again, your Darren Collison, your Patrick Beverly, like someone who can be a stopgap option. Uh, and then that younger point guard can maybe play 20 minutes instead of 30 to 35 the rookie year and learn under a player like that. Uh, and then shift Anthony Melton or Elliot Koba or whoever down to the third string. That's well, I believe all we have teed up. Yeah, I think that pretty much wraps up uh, our little mini Suns mailbag and our Suns exit interview. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Sam. Appreciate it. Yeah, this was awesome. You guys had some good questions. You covered... Uh, pretty, we covered pretty much everyone on the team. So hopefully your fans got some insight. Shout out to you for that. Um, and shout out to Dan for uh, just powering through these exit interviews. He's going to make a landing page on NBA math uh, in case any of you guys missed any of the episodes that have been recorded so far. I think he's done over half the league at this point. Um, and if you want to find him on Twitter and shout at him about any of the takes from these pods, he's at Dan Valley, F-A-V. A-L-E. I'm at Andrew D. Bailey. The show is at Hardwood Knox. Um, I'll turn the the floor back to you, Sam, for just a second if you want to plug your Twitter Twitter handle and, and whatever else you got going on. Sure. If you're a Suns fan listening to this show and you don't listen to our show, it's the Timeline Podcast. At the Timeline Pod is our Twitter handle. Um, at S. Cooper Hoops is my personal Twitter handle. Feel free to give me a follow and yell at me about anything I've said. If you really want Terry Rogier, uh, if you know, you really wish Cheryl Watson was still the head coach, please come find me and yell at me and I'll, I'll be more than receptive to your harassment. <laughs> and if you haven't already uh, rated, reviewed, and subscribed to both of these Blue Wire pods, uh, The Timeline and Hardwood Knox, go ahead and do that. And if you have, uh, coerce your friends and family into doing it. And until next time, we leave you with the shout out to Ben Audrey and Kyle Anderson. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.